0: From the first century down to our own day, people have tried to embrace and affirm the teaching of Jesus while rejecting the idea of his deity. But scripture is perfectly clear on the matter. Jesus Christ is God. All creation is under his authority. Alistair Begg expounds on this reality today on Truth For Life as he concludes a series called Grace and Peace. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23.
1: he's begun his first long sentence, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all these things in the heavenly places and has laid this all out. And now he says, In light of all of that, I'm praying for you folks that you would come to a solid experiential grasp of this and that you would know who Jesus is. Let me just point out three things. He is underscoring, number one, Christ's absolute supremacy— Christ's absolute supremacy. Secondly, above all authority. All authority. The idea that the judicial system would be impartial, not a political uh, machine, uh, takes us back uh, some time. But that being said, If you're tempted to roll over in your bed and pull the blankets over your head because you think somehow or another the world is so upside down that it will never be righted, then get yourself a Bible, and before you get out of your bed, just say to yourself, He has been placed far above all rule and all authority. And if you can manage to sing it, sing to yourself, There is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come, because he rules over all of these things." far above all power. All power. Now, you go back into, you know, your engineering lab tomorrow and tell them, say, By the way, I was just thinking yesterday morning about how uh, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is, is so powerful that he's, he's far above all power, all of this stuff. He invented it, ultimately. Your friend's going to say, you know, take a couple of Tylenol and a day off, and uh, come, come back later on, and, and meanwhile we will, we will arrange for you to see somebody. <laughs> right, he's far above all power. The disciple said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, he's the creator of the universe. You would be surprised if they didn't obey him. These are simply indications of his kingship. He's far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. That's why when Jesus dispatches his disciples, he says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. What an amazing thing to say. Is there anyone else who qualifies for making such a statement? Do you know of anyone you've read in history? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Who do you think you are, Jesus? God? Only God has all authority in heaven and on earth. Exactly. And he doesn't stop there. And he says, uh, and above every name that is named. Above every name that is named. That must have rung for the Ephesians because they had been around when the big brouhaha had emerged uh, in, the, in the center of the, uh, the community. And how they had um, uh, come up against Paul and his proclamation of the gospel. And uh, in the riot that emerged. Uh, they said to one another, there is danger not only that this trade of ours—they were selling uh, these little shrines, these little silver gizmos—there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute—and we don't want it to affect our bottom line—but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Or Great is Diana the Greek uh, of the Ephesians! And Paul says, You need to know that his name is far above any name. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Churchill, one of my heroes. No. No reading a book at the moment, Gandhi and Churchill. I'm about a third of the way through. You've got to pay attention. But in the course of it, I discovered what I always surmised—that Churchill was a radical secularist, and that as an early, in his early days, in his early twenties, as he served in a soldier, he'd never really read a book in his life. And he suddenly realized, I don't know hardly anything, so he started to read that's why the reading of books, incidentally, is so vitally important because what he started to read was not a help to him. It was, in the end, a hindrance to him. And he read in particular and was influenced by a book by Winwood Reed called The Martyrdom of Man. The impact upon him, he said afterwards, was intense because it reinforced his lessons from Macaulay, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire as history being the story of the triumph of modern progress and of science over primitive cruelty and superstition. The book, The Martyrdom of Man, was an early manifesto of what it would later be called social Darwinism. And it presented history as a single process of the rise and survival of the fittest, showing how our own prosperity is founded on the agonies of the past. This book made an indelible impression on the young churchill And he was struck by its devastating critique of Christianity and of religious faith as reflections of man's most backward tendencies. Reed's unabashed atheism left Winston, by his own admission, with a predominantly secular view of life and human nature that lasted until death. More than half a century later, he would querulously ask his doctor how any trained physician could possibly believe In an afterlife. Billy Graham met him in London when he was there on one of his crusades. He had personal time with him. And I remember him telling us that as he laid the gospel out for Churchill, Churchill said to him, Dr. Graham, for me it is too late. For me it is too late. You may be here this morning. You feel that way yourself. It is never too late, as long as you have life and breath. But you're gonna have to bow your arrogant knees You're gonna have to bring yourself down before you come up. Churchill believed the triumph of science over what he regarded as superstitious faith. Maybe you do, too. Well, I have to tell you that the name of the Lord Jesus is greater than Diana, Churchill, Alexander the Great, and not only in this age but in the ages to come. All the powers throughout space and time, all the powers, whether material or spiritual, in that whole continuum, are underneath his rule. So, the supremacy of Christ. And then, very quickly, we also have affirmed for us the authority of the church, the sole authority of the church. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The Lord of the universe is the head of the church. When uh, David, in his Psalms, under the direction of the Spirit— pens that amazing poem. Remember, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he goes on to speak of man. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, and so on. Well, in actual fact, that Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. to the extent that it was fulfilled in Adam or in humanity, that has all been flawed as a result of our rebellion. But in Christ it is fulfilled, because he is the one who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And what Paul is affirming here for these believers is that this church, which is the body of Christ—which incidentally is a unique metaphor to Paul—he's the only person who uses that picture of the church. I wonder whether it was because of his encounter on the Damascus Road when he had the question confronting him from the heavens, Why do you persecute me? And Paul must have thought to himself, What do you mean, me? I'm persecuting them. And as his mind was schooled under that encounter and by the work of the Holy Spirit, he realized this is the wonder that Christ is the head and his people are the body. And they share in Christ's victory, and they are energized by Christ's power, and they are taught by Christ's Word. And this Jesus is the head over all things. So, in fact, the victory of Jesus in the cross has secured the final doom of Satan and his hosts. Now, the demons— are defeated, but they refuse to concede. If we were able to see this morning the extent to which demonic activity is, is part and parcel of human existence, it, it would be a, a dreadful experience for sure. And so we need to be reminded this morning that although all of these things go on—he's going to come to Ephesians 6 and say, you better have all the armor of God on that you can deal with the, the, the onslaught of the evil one. At the moment, he says, you need to know that death has been dethroned, and one day it will be destroyed. One day it will be destroyed. When the last enemy, which is death, is finally destroyed, then we will be in that place that is anticipated in Revelation. The writer to the Hebrews gives us a tremendous help when again quoting Psalm 8 about putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews 2, uh, verse 8, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's true, isn't it? Well, we don't see everything in subjection to him. In fact, it looks as though hardly anything is in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see that? We do not see everything under subjection. Uh, The devil is a defeated foe. It is checkmate. That is absolutely assured. You can continue to play out with your pieces on the board, but you cannot affect the ultimate outcome. That is what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is a defeated foe. He continues now to engage in spiritual warfare— the fact of the matter is that in Christ, all is put under his feet. One day, that will be realized in all of its fullness. And in the meantime, although we do not see that in its totality, we see Jesus. Which, again, you see, is the reminder of why it is we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We see Jesus. The reason that I'm in trouble is because I don't see Jesus, because I see myself. I'm thinking about myself. How's it going for me? Am I doing well? Am I doing poorly? Is this exactly what I wanted? Am I experiencing this or that or the next thing? What do I need? I don't need a course on that. I need to see Christ. See him how? Not as a Galilean peasant wandering around like an erstwhile first-century Gandhi, but to see him as the ascended king, seated in a position of authority above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that has been named. That's what I need. And you wouldn't know that's what you need, unless you weren't here to hear the Bible this morning, because you would have concluded that you need something else. And you may even think you need something else, because those other things are of importance. Of course they are. But the real need for the Christian is to understand who Christ is and all that is ours in Christ. The relation— says one of our Dutch Reformed friends, The relationship between Christ's power over all things and his sovereignty over the church is such that he employs the former to the preservation and salvation of the latter. As the head of the church, he is the sole authority. He is the head over all things to the church. Therefore, we do not yield to the state nor to a pope, nor to little mini-popes. Every pastor has the potential to become a mini-pope. We yield not to popes. We yield not to the state. We do what we're supposed to do in rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, but when that invasion takes place in the realm of the church to tell us about the nature of marriage, we do not yield to the state to tell us about the significance of sexuality, we do not yield to the state. That tells us what we do about this or that, we do not yield to the state. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in these circumstances to obey God or to obey man. He is the head and the sole authority, and he is the source of all of the church's fullness. He is the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, you know, uh, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says to the Ephesians, and the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ, and Christ is is the head of the church, and he is the very fullness that is ours, all wrapped up in him. Josiah Conder in the, in the 19th, 18th and 19th century was a great hymn writer as well, and he was doing the same thing as Wesley. Listen to these words. He reigns, ye saints, exalt your strains. Your God is king, the Father reigns, and he's at the Father's side, the man of love, the crucified. And that stanza brings us to a final observation, which is not only is Paul underscoring the absolute authority and supremacy of Jesus, and the sole authority of Christ over the church, but also the believer's security on account of that. You see, it is the supremacy of Christ which is the basis of safety and security for the Christian. If you think about it, do you know anywhere where your sins can be forgiven? other than in Christ, then it is in his supreme sacrifice and triumph over sin that there is the opportunity for cleansing and for forgiveness. Do you know of anyone in the universe who has conquered death and opened up the way for another to triumph in death? Save Jesus. No, you see, it is his supremacy which is the foundation of of security. And it is the function of faith to acknowledge the reality of Christ's supremacy and rule in the very period of time when unbelievers say it can't possibly be. It's the function of faith to acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in a context where unbelief pushes back. Now, this morning, for some of us, that is a particular challenge, isn't it? But ask yourself, your faith may not be very strong, but you have faith, don't you? You do believe, don't you? You may not, you know, like, be really believing, 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 but you're kind of like, believing. I mean, do you have faith like a A strand of of a spider's web. That will be sufficient, provided that childlike simple faith is grounded in the supremacy of Christ. And when your friends and family members push back and tell you it's crazy, and you're tempted to be pressed down by the extent of the opposition, this is where we look. This is the antidote to our fears. This is the assurance of safety in our alarms. When I'm, a, when I'm aware of fightings within and fears without, when I'm conscious of my weakness, when I'm aware of the fact that I am not all that I should be and so on, I have to rest in the fact of his authority and in his power. You say, yeah, but what about all this authority and his power? I authority in his power, and I lost my job. Authority and power, and my health has failed. Authority and power, and my spouse has died. Well, this is not heaven yet. This is the mystery of God's providence. What do you do? You cry, you mourn, you wonder, you bow. And you say to yourself, The God who has taken— my loved one to himself, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He never would cause his child a needless tear. And therefore, although I do not understand this right now, I bow beneath his rule and his authority. Along that path, there is safety, And if you talk to Christians who have lived for long enough to have experienced the ups and downs and the ins and outs and the failures and the foibles and the scramblings and the mess, then some of them will be bold and honest enough to tell you that the greatest progress that they've made in the journey of faith has not been in triumph but has been in affliction—has not been when the band is playing and everybody's marching but it's been when they felt themselves to be alone in the universe. And then they cried out, Abba, Father! The hymn writer—and with this I close—captures the wonder of this safety. Um, And this is a lady, Anna Letitia Waring, writes this hymn. In heavenly love abiding, No change my heart shall fear. And safe as such confiding— For nothing changes here. The storm may roar about me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me, and can I be dismayed?" That's the great question, isn't it? And here we are as a church. What is it we really need? New techniques? New plans? New screens? new seats. We're grateful for it all. But what we need is a sight of the risen, ascended, reigning Christ. Bring all your fears there. Cast yourself into the immensity of God's amazing love in Jesus. Luxuriate, if you like, in the overwhelming sweep of his grace and of his goodness. And don't let anybody tell you differently. Rest in his promises. Live in his presence. And by God's grace, go out and fulfill his purposes for you.
0: Wrapping up our series in Ephesians 1 called Grace and Peace. You're listening to Alistair Begg and this is Truth For Life. Alistair returns in a minute with a closing prayer. Before he does though, I'd like to tell you about a resource we are making available today that aligns perfectly with Alistair's closing point. As he said, the church's greatest need isn't a new building or a new program. The church's greatest need is a fixed and steady focus on the risen, ascended, reigning Christ. That's at the heart of a new book we're featuring, written by author and pastor Joe Thorne. The book is titled The Heart of the Church. Without the gospel, the church doesn't exist. And when churches lose sight of their mission— They become dry and stagnant and ineffective. This book offers a full and detailed exploration of the message that is indispensable to any church's health and identity. If your church seems to be lacking power or if you are personally feeling spiritually dry, the heart of the church brings refreshment, direction, and light leading to worship. We highly recommend this book for every believer. In fact, some of you will want to order an extra copy to share with your pastor or with your small group. Request a copy of The Heart of the Church when you donate today to support the ministry of Truth For Life. And don't forget that additional copies can be purchased at our cost without any markup. Go to truthforlife.org donate or call 888-588-7884. Now here's Alistair to close our series with prayer. Father, thank you
1: that we have a Bible to which we can turn. We don't have to come in here and try and think up something to say. We want to be students of your Word. We want to learn this morning that you really are supreme over all things. And in our world of turmoil and chaos and bloodshed and pain, only the eyes of our hearts, enlightened by your grace and truth, will allow us to affirm that you are actually supreme over all. Help us, then, to bow beneath your majesty now and throughout the day and tomorrow when we go back to all the things we have to do so that in the minority status, which is ours as believers in this great land, we may commend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very fullness of him who is all in all. For we pray in his name. Amen.
0: I'm Bob Lapine. hoping you'll join us next time for a special message about leaving a legacy of faith to the next generation. Be sure to listen Friday. This daily program features the Bible teaching of Alistair Begg. It's furnished by Truth For Life. learning is for living.